Hello and welcome to episode 122 of the Her Story Speaks podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing sacred and powerful stories of women who have too often gone unheard, but are most often the ones we need to be listening to. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm joining you from Kansas City, Missouri, on the native lands of the Kaw and Kickapoo Nations. As we approach nearly four months of Israel's deadly attacks on Gaza, we also find ourselves in the depths of one of the most horrific humanitarian crises we are seeing play out daily in real time. With nearly 30,000 people killed in Gaza, 70% of those are women, children, and the elderly. Over 8,000 people are missing under the rubble, and at least 2 million people are displaced in Gaza, which is more than 85% of its population. And now disease and famine are hitting the land hard. This is something we cannot turn a blind eye to. As my guest today says, it's a humanity thing at this point, not a me or you thing. It's an us thing. My guest today knows all too well the devastating effects of war, particularly those resulting from Israel's occupation of the land of her ancestors, Palestine. Samantha Salem is a proud Palestinian mother of three and a realtor currently living in the Kansas City area. With her father from Gaza, he was forced to flee war as a teenager. And her mother from Vietnam, she was also forced to flee war as a teenager. Samantha now describes herself as a double byproduct of war. As she says, wars that were ignited by white settler colonizers in distant lands for greed and power. In our conversation, Samantha shares her story of living 10 years of her life in Gaza and how her life was affected by Israel's occupation of the land of her ancestors. She shares how Israel's current attacks have now displaced all of her family living in Gaza and the devastation and death that has directly affected her and her family. Samantha has a passion for educating others about Palestine and she's committing to making sure Palestinian voices are not silenced. So please listen in on our conversation as Samantha shares her story as we keep this important Palestinian and humanitarian conversation alive. All right, let's just jump in, Samantha. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I can't thank you enough. And as I was getting ready, I was just like, thank you doesn't seem like enough because I know you have been and your ancestors through so much trauma for a lifetime, but especially the last few months. So to retell your story, I know brings up a lot. So I really just want to honor you doing this and what it takes from you to, to share. So thank you doesn't seem like enough, but I truly mean it for you just taking this time and resharing things that are hard in your story. I appreciate the opportunity um, to uplift my people's voices any way, shape or form I can. And I also really am encouraged and heartwarmed by how awake America is right now in terms of just education and learning what's really happening. So anything I can do to bring a an easier to digest light about what's going on, um, I'm definitely happy to share. Thank you for that. And my listeners will have known a little bit about you because in the intro, I will have introduced you. Could you tell us just a little bit more not your whole story yet, but just your day-to-day, who you are, where you live, and what you do. Because yes, you are a Palestinian woman whose part of your story is living in Gaza and family and relatives there. 
but right now you don't live in Gaza and we don't live far from each other. So just tell a little bit about here and right now what your life is. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Samantha. I am a single mom. I've been living in Kansas City since 2006. So that's a very long time <laughs> in my terms. But I've made Kansas City home and I have three kids that are bigger and taller and louder than I am. And I do real estate for a living. So I um, I'm a real estate agent with three snickels and I help people find home as well. So, which is why this is really important to me because I make a living and I'm passionate about helping people find what is home to them while my people back home are struggling to even remember what that word means. So mm -hmm. anything I can do to yeah. try amplify the importance of home and, and shelter and how important of a human need that is a basic human need um to to live in your home in peace is something very dear to my heart mm, that's really very deep i never i did not think about that correlation with what you do daily tying i in. think about it single yeah. day <laughs> and like you said you're a real estate agent which it's not lost on me how brave you are being very outspoken in, and we'll talk about that later about ways to be raising our voices um, that you are very brave and outspoken when your career could be at risk. And I think so many people are afraid to speak up because of that. And you are such a brave example of being like, no, this is, I'm, I'm speaking truth and my ancestors and freedom and liberation for all is what is drives me. So I appreciate your example with that. Absolutely. When we don't have the privilege of staying quiet, unfortunately, and when it comes down, I'm pretty sure every person, if they were in my shoes, they would do the same for their family. So when you think about the grand scheme of things in life, what really matters at the end? If you were on your deathbed right now, what exactly are the things that actually matter? And if you don't have your family and if you don't have peace and security, then I don't think anything else matters. Um, my my company has been extremely supportive of me throughout the years. And um, I am very grateful for that. But I do understand that a lot of people can't be outspoken because of, you know, risk of loss of job or being fired or, or, or and unfortunately, that's the, <laughs> the freedom of speech, quote unquote, that we have here in the US is that unless it's what we want to hear, you can't really say it. And I, I just I don't I don't believe in that. I've always been rebellious at heart. And this is definitely the cause to stand up and speak up for when my own people are dying and being killed and suffering and displaced. And it's it's a humanity thing at this point. It's not a me or you thing. It's an us thing. This is an us problem. And we need to discuss it and treat it that way. That's right. And I want to dive more into that because I think everybody needs to realize that this is not us, them. This is all of us together with this. Um, and our liberation is so tied together. So before we dive into that, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit of your origin story, because like you mentioned, your ancestors are from Palestine. You have hundreds of years of ancestors that um, are native to the land. 
And I'm going to read something, if you don't mind, just a, real quick on one of your Facebook or Instagram posts um, that maybe will lead you into sharing a little of your origin story. But I thought it was really profound. It said, you said, I am a double byproduct of war. Wars that were ignited by white settler colonizers in distant lands for greed and power. My existence unfolds on a land forcibly taken just centuries ago. The echoes of colonization persist in the very soul beneath my feet. The depths of ancestral trauma sink within me, a silent curse etched in my very DNA that courses through my veins. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> so share share the story behind, behind that when you say you're a yeah. double byproduct of war. So by a stroke of luck, I was born in New Jersey as a U.S. American citizen. My father is Palestinian. He's originally from Gaza City. His parents, his ancestors, everybody was from there. And my mother um, is, was, is a Vietnam refugee from the war. Her parents were Chinese and they moved to Vietnam and then the war happened. So she came to the States um, as a refugee on one of those big ships. Um, so war here war there both wars were you know conducted by the european american union what i call it <laughs> the us britain the whole entire thing and i ended up in the same land that caused both of my parents to leave and it's ironic and the only reason I'm able to speak up and be here and do all these things is because of that. So that's why I said, because of a stroke of luck, because had that not happened, I probably wouldn't be there. I would probably be either under the rubble right now or displaced trying to find a dirty puddle of water to drink from or to grind animal feed to make bread. So I don't take that for granted at all. And I'm very aware of my own privilege within my own community and when, within my own culture um, because of the the luck that my dad found when he was able to secure a student visa to come to the States and study. So which revoked his Palestinian paperwork when he did that. Okay, so repeat that, that revoked his Palestinian paperwork because in that post you said they also don't, your dad didn't have Palestinian paperwork. And so that revoked that when he came here. That's so interesting. So essentially yeah. he was without a home or a land, quote. Is that correct? Yeah, he you know, he came to the States on a student visa. They took his Palestinian ID from him. The Israelis took the Palestinian ID from him. So he no longer had that. My mother got um, U.S. citizenship by asylum because she was a, a war refugee. And then when they got married, that's how he received his citizenship. Like okay. it's, it's just the whole of like drama movie right now. And I right. got it because I was to them. Yeah. Right. Okay. So going back a little further, your grandparents, like your dad's parents, they were born mm -hmm. in Palestine. I'm not sure in the math and the years, were they born there before the Israeli state of Israel was created? Israel was created in 1948. Okay. They were, so they were living in land Palestinian land that was theirs before Israel took over. Okay. My grandmother and just passed away on, on Christmas day uh, a couple weeks ago, but she was older than the state of Israel. 
I'm so sorry for your loss. And I know that she was living in Gaza and bedridden and had to be moved. So this war genocide that's going on now likely contributed to her loss of life sooner because of what was going on around her. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I truly believe that her, her life ended and escalated just because she could not receive the food and the medication and the water that she needed. She was not able to have the movement that she needed. She was not able to receive the hospital treatment or medical treatment that she needed because the hospitals in Gaza right now are at like 250% capacity and they're only accepting the wounded by all of the, the strikes and the missiles that are happening or the pregnant women that are giving birth to their babies by C-section with no anesthesia. So when you don't have supplies like that, then any other illness doesn't matter. When you're trying to keep people that are cut up in limbs surviving, you know, oh, your stomach pain. I mean, I can't do anything about that right now. You know what I mean? So she she could not receive medical care for three months. She was laying in a bed in a very small, it's not even a house. It's like a little well house almost on, uh, on our land that we had uh, more closer to the south that they evacuated to. And um, it was it was cold. They were hungry. She couldn't really move. So her body started having bed sores because she couldn't get up and go anywhere. She had her illness caused her to need uh, the use of bathrooms all the time. And now that she no longer had the water or the bathroom or whatnot to to use, um, they they had to like figure out alternatives. And that caused a lot of skin problems for her. So it, it just all in all, it was not, it was a very devastating way to go. And not dignified at all. Not a life valued. I'm so not, not at all. No, no. I'm pretty sure had, had this not the siege not happened where they cut off water and food and electricity and everything to everybody. The collective punishment is what killed her. 100%. And I think that's so important because when we look at these staggering death tolls, I mean, they're saying right now more than 25,000, like numbers like your grandma are probably not included in that. Like these, it, it's it's like the direct bomb victims or like, so the death toll is much, much larger because we have life going on as humans that need care or food and they're not getting it. So this death toll that we see is so much higher than we're told, I'm yeah. assuming. Would that be correct? Yeah, no, uh, for sure. And and ever since they started cutting off like connectivity and, and communications and stuff, and they started bombing literally every single piece of infrastructure we had, none of these death tolls are even accurate anymore. We don't have the systems to be able to count like we used to. And the hospitals aren't even functioning correctly the way they are supposed to. So I'm like, it could, anybody could just throw a number out and I'm pretty sure it's still too low. But there is people under the rubble that have not been found since the very beginning. And you have the people and the children that are dying by hunger. Hunger. Imagine the guilt as a parent of losing your child because you could not feed them. Imagine that eternal guilt that you will have for the rest of your life. It's I, I don't think we can. Like I humans were not supposed parents were not supposed to understand that. I don't think that we can. And it's just 
one of the most inhumane things that I've ever seen in recent times, you know, and like, we all know about the Holocaust, but it's like, we're seeing this in real time every day. And you're right. I don't think these numbers are remotely accurate what they probably are. I know today I looked and um, they're saying more than 25,000 people killed half children. How about half are children? 75% are children, women, and elderly. Um, over 8,000 missing miscarriages up 3,000%. Or 300%, I'm sorry, at least a million people displaced and 8,000 missing. So that's like best case scenario. So we're still, and I, you know, one of the articles I saw today said, oh, the death toll is going down, which I think is probably wildly inaccurate from that resource, because we know that this is still going on daily. And I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I want, I do think it's important that we continue to talk about the severity of it. Um, when we dive into a few things later in our conversation, I want to kind of reel us back in to your story before we get too deeply into all of this. So like you said, yeah, your absolutely. dad born and raised in Palestine, your grandma. So did your grandma, like you said, she was there before Israel became the state. Was she removed forcibly from her land? Cause that's, what we now, when we dig into history and we start to learn true history, we hear that Palestinians were removed when the state of Israel was cre created and forcibly removed from their land and houses. Was that a part of your grandma's story? Um, so no, my my ancestors are from Gaza City, so they were not part of the the displaced people that had to take seek refuge in Gaza. No. Okay, but had they been yep. on other land, they would have been part of that story. One hundred percent. So you were right. You were born and raised in the United States, but at some point you chose, or your dad chose, to go back to Gaza and live. So can you take us to that part of your story, and when that was, why, and we'll talk a little bit about your time living in Gaza. Yeah. So in nineteen ninety six, I was turning ten years old. Um, we were living in Memphis at the time. And my dad decided to take uh, my mom, my siblings and I to just move back overseas because my kids needed to learn the culture. That was his reasoning, basically. So um, we did. We sold everything and we moved back. Well, I moved there for the first time. He moved back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so 1996 was the year that we moved to Gaza and it, I stayed there till 2006. So it was a good 10 years, my 10 formative teenage years um, of where I was now living in a very different culture, very different um, language traditions. And I had like dozens of cousins. <laughs> and now all of a sudden there's this like village feel because they actually, you know, love community and, and community and village that that villagehood or whatever we call it is extremely important there that we Americans absolutely lack drastically here right now. So it was really interesting. Nice. Um, it took me about a year or two to become fluent in Arabic. He put us, um, believe it or not, he put us in a private Christian school for five years so we can learn um, Arabic and they had the better, more, I guess, you know, private school quality education. And that was really interesting also because that school was 80% Muslim. 
Right. Like, I did not know this part of your story. We've, we've talked before this where you shared a little of your story. I did not know that you spent five years in a Christian school. Because when we think, obviously, of Gaza, we think in Palestine, like, yep. so primarily all Muslim. So, but the school had Muslim students. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then the the Christians would go to the church, which is in the middle of the grounds, the school grounds, the Christians would go to the church to study. And then we would have our own Islamic teacher that would come to the class. And then, you know, every, everybody knew where their lines were and everybody was respectful. The boundaries were love. And um, we have a very amazing Christian community in Gaza that we spoke very highly of and we respected so it, all of this hate talk with religions and crap is all bullshit <laughs> like, I well, I think, is there, bullshit. you can say bullshit you can say whatever you want we're not censoring um as but that's as you're talking that is reminding me of a myth that i think so many of us have but if you look before the israeli occupation like history true history shows us that christians muslims jewish people they lived together peaceably for the most part in Palestine. And we think that it was like all warring and getting religions conflict before that, but that's not the case. So it sounds to me like when you moved to Gaza, that was still the case within Gaza. Yeah. And it still will be the case. Yeah, it, It's yeah. That, never a case to begin with. My best friend yeah. from childhood from that school was a Christian girl. And we just, we clicked, we clicked and we, we stayed in touch and we're still Facebook friends. And it's, mm -hmm insane how people try to dehumanize us by forcing us to hate people yeah and that's exactly what it is i mean it is just dehumanizing and putting a narrative and a story there that's untrue to make you look less than um and i think that's again why telling these stories and hearing experiences are so important so you're living in gaza you're going to a christian school i'm sure that was a lot to get used to um but you love the community, your family, cousins, aunts, uncles were there. So I'm guessing, did you feel eventually feel very at home there? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I learned pretty quickly about myself is my ability to adapt really fast. Mm -hmm. um, if you put me in a place for a couple of days, I can figure out life. <laughs> That's just a thing that I now, as an adult, I'm aware of. But um it is what it is. And I was going to make the best out of it. So my, my cousins and I, there were so many of us around the same age group. We would, would play in the street all the time. We would go and then dress up and play with makeup or play dolls like a, you know, like a regular 10 year old would do. Um, we would do sleepovers because one of the best things my grandfather had did for us, which he passed away in 1996, like literally a month or two after we got there, he passed away. Um, but what the the best part that he did was he bought a piece of land and he cut it up for each one of his children to build a house on later. Mm -hmm. So our like when I <laughs> when I say I just want to buy a piece of land and have all of my best friends and all of my family live on it, that's literally what my grandfather did. Mm -hmm. So all of my uncles, all of our houses are next to each other within this little block of land that we have. And it was very easy for us to wake up in the morning or come home from after school. Hey, I'm going to go to my uncle's house. I'm going to go play with my cousins. I'm going to go do this. And everybody was very close. We were safe within our little block, neighborhood block. So we would do sleepovers. We would 
stay up super late on and sit on the rooftops and save all of our allowances and just go buy bulk snacks with them and everybody would share and we would just it was just so simple it was so simple I I wish my children now could have a little bit of that yeah it, it was such a good love to my child and I think people might be surprised to hear that because again the narratives and the things that we think we know um because we think that land has always been war-torn or famine or whatever. But your time there was before some significant historical events happened. So for the most part, did you not experience like Israeli soldiers coming in and brutalizing people or the apartheid we hear about? Did you experience any of that during your time there? So yeah, there, there's you're always going to have experiences. They weren't as loud as they are now. Um, so... For example, the borders for us to go inside the Israeli-occupied land, basically, um, you have to go through borders. You would definitely see Israeli soldiers there. They would definitely treat you like shit. And then you would go through, even with your U.S. passport, they would still, like, it, it means nothing. It means nothing to them. If they know you're maybe Arab or maybe Muslim, that's it. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, we we were able once or twice to go to Tel Aviv or go to Jerusalem and just hang out. And, and I remember it distinctively because when my dad took us, I feel like within that first year, we went to Burger King. And that was something that my dad had taken us to a lot when we were back in the States. So I was like, oh, my God, I get to eat Burger King. Like, what the heck? That was I still remember that. Um, so we were able to travel a little bit. And I don't know the details of how that happened or how long it took for us to get those permits to leave. Um, I haven't asked my dad about that, but I was I was 10, obviously. Um, yeah. But they did. Happen. We were able to do that. My do mom had friends leave that she would visit every now and then that she was able to go do that with. So there, there was a little bit of movement. It wasn't as restricted or sieged as it has been since 2006. Okay. So I'm wondering also, because you did have a U.S. passport, I know you said that didn't matter that much, but I wondered if that mattered a little bit and you're going back and forth, perhaps. Um, had you had a just... Yeah, I, I'm sure it mattered for sure. Because if you were strictly Palestinian paperwork, there was no way they were going to let you through without some kind of... They call it a tasrih, which means a, a permit or permission that you have to apply for. And sometimes it takes months for you to get. And if you get it, it's either like worth a day or a week or a month, depending on what kind of permit it is. But I don't think they would just give tourism permits for mm -hmm. regular Gaza. You know what I mean? So you had mm -hmm. to have some to go in. Um, if it work or medical or, or whatnot. So I, I'm just not familiar with those reasons yeah. we win a child. Sure. But, and yeah. I, and I think I'm just, I'm just wanting to get like an accurate story of someone who has lived it um, and just seeing the levels of the apartheid, because clearly it's still going on for it to be that, for it to be challenging at all. Like it is not traveling from state to state, um, like in this country. So tell right. me also what I want to ask. And so people know, um, like compare for me the size of Gaza, because we're not talking about a huge country. So when you would leave and go to the Israeli occupied land. So for perspective, tell us what the size of Gaza is um, where you are living. So when I looked it up, because I was really curious about that, too, it's mm -hmm. basically half the size of the Kansas City metro. 
And when I dive deeper into like actual square footage and stuff, it is the city of Independence and the city of Lee Summit combined. But you have 2.2 million people living there, super condensed, you know, back to back on top of each other, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's it's super small. It's not that big. And the conditions just continue to worsen, you know, from your time there, from the time that you left. So when you left, what year did you leave again? I'm sorry, you told me this, but... 2006. So 2006. As you left, there were other historical things happening, though, that made the conditions worse after you left. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Because the Gaza that you lived in versus the Gaza 10 years later after you left was definitely not not the same. Yeah. So while I was still living there, we had Israeli settlements within the Gaza Strip land. And the closest one to us was called Nitzarim. Um, I do remember if we were to drive even close to that road that we would get shot at. So everybody avoided it. Um, But like the resistance fighters kept on kind of like instigating them or something so they could leave. So actually in 2005, Israel made the decision to withdraw entirely from Gaza. And then 2006 was the year that I left. But what happened when I was supposed to leave was that there was some kind of escalation to what the response to was, I think an Israeli soldier was kidnapped or held hostage or something. And then that whole uproar happened because I was supposed to leave in August and I was supposed to go through Jerusalem to Ares border to get to Jerusalem to get my U.S. passport renewed because I was there for 10 years. So I no longer, you know, had it um, active. And that was that whole entire process of trying to just get me, small me, little U.S. citizen with no Palestinian paperwork out of Gaza Strip on time for a flight was it took a month and a half of just heartache and anxiety and turmoil just trying to get that done. I was 19 at the time. You couldn't go through the Rafah border, which is the border between Gaza and Egypt, which is where I needed to go. I needed to end up in Cairo. So we couldn't do that because everybody closed the borders because of that escalation that happened. Um, And I apologize, I don't have too many memories because that's something I kind of like blocked Mm -hmm. off of my brain. So then we're like, okay, well, the only other way to get out is to go through Israel, to go through the Erez border, which then you would take a bus and then you would have to go to the border between Israel and Jordan. And then from Jordan, drive to Amman and then take a flight from Amman and then get to Cairo and then you can go to your Cairo flight. And that's what I did as a 19 year old by myself with nobody else with me. They had to get the UN buses to bring a bunch of us U.S. citizens to be able to evacuate. And it took me three tries. I I would go every morning at 5 a.m. They said, go meet up in this place. And I would drag all of my suitcases with me and my dad would drive me. And then by the time they would say, your renewed passport is at the border. So just when you get to everybody to the border, they're going to give it to you. And the first day, nope, I was I was sent back home because my passport wasn't there, it was stuck somewhere else. And then the next day they told me the same exact thing. Nope, the passport was not there. So I was like, I'm not going until somebody tells me where where mm-hmm. my passport is. And then by the third time, 
they were like, okay, your passport is physically here at the border. You can come now. And that's when all the, the things were happening and there was like missiles everywhere and, and shootings and whatnot. So it was very difficult. And I had never been by myself before, especially traveling. Cause remember when I got there, I was nine and the only places I knew how to go were to take a taxi to go to school and take a taxi and go to university. And that was it. Like there was no travel experience for me at the time, especially cross country with no cell phone, with no ways of communication other than trusting the people I was with. I'm glad it didn't traumatize me that much, but it was definitely an experience that that was very difficult and, and unfair. Like it was unfair. I, there, that did not need to happen, Correct. but it needed to happen because that's how the climate is. And the Israelis actually, once I got there, they went and they looked at my passport and they held me back for an hour because they were trying to figure out if I did have a Palestinian ID or not. And I feel like it's very easy to tell that I don't because I never owned one before. Mm -hmm. But it's also not lost on me. I mean, one, you're a U.S. citizen and it's still this hard. But I have to think if you were a white in a white body and not mm -hmm. looking like a brown Muslim Palestinian woman, it would not have been this hard. So just that control of movement out because you are a Palestinian woman in a brown body. I mean, such an example of that right there with that story. They, they always will suspect you no matter what. They will always have those suspicions and prejudice and whatnot. Yeah. So yeah. so you left family, your dad, uncles, cousins to come to America. And you still, I know now your dad is back and maybe we'll get into that, but um, you still have family in Gaza. And I've seen a little bit on your Instagram and Facebook of the videos of your uncle's house and cousins like it's it's horrific you have family directly being bombed and displaced because of what is currently going on is that correct yeah i don't yeah. have a single family member that i can think of that is not displaced right now the end of october one of my cousins who i just saw last year in in 2022 when i went back for the first time in a very long time i went to go visit for five days that journey on its own was a it needs a different podcast but um <laughs> I I was able to see her and I, I hung out with everybody and I got the news that she was killed in her own home um mm. around the times where they were telling people to evacuate and go from the north to the south and whatnot she happened to be sitting in a in a room like a corner room to the that was facing the street and that house was targeted and then we lost her and she leaves behind like her husband and her children. One of her kids is in Turkey right now studying and um, they're, everybody was devastated because like, wait, what? We lost somebody right. to this and she was at home. Like, how does that make sense? And what you just said that you don't have a single family member that's not been displaced now in Gaza. Like that is the scale of what what we're looking at. And, you know, one of the things that when we talked prior about, and so many people can say, I think now the narrative is changing, but, oh, this just started with Hamas on October 7th. Well, no, that's not true. This started way, way, way back. And one of the examples that you gave to me, and if you could maybe share just a little bit of that, like, okay, imagine somebody comes into your house as a house guest, 
So that really paints a very clear picture of what happened or what is happening, I guess. And again, counteracts the, the argument that, oh, this happened with Hamas or Hamas started all this. But maybe if you don't mind just sharing a little bit of what the example that you gave me. Yeah, no, every time I hear that October 7 was unprovoked, I just, I just f- find it very comical because people only know what they know and they can't know if the media keeps showing you all the bullshit side of the story and the propaganda that they want you to know. So I can't, can't blame them for thinking that, but at the same time, like do, do better. Like what the heck? (laughs) Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, Ooh, I feel thirsty for blood. I want to kill people. Like that's never the case. Never for us at least. So to like make the idea or the understanding of what occupation really is, I like to use that that story of, let's say that you own this nice, beautiful home and you've lived there, your grandfather built it and your parents lived there and now you live there and there's a high chance that your children later on will live there. Um, everything was made multi-generational in mind. And you hear about these people that have been persecuted and displaced and been treated differently just because of their religion. And all of a sudden you have this opportunity to house them, even temporarily, because they, that's what we do as humans is we take care of each other. And um, these people come in and you house them and you feed them and you take care of them. And they take up maybe your living room space, which is okay because that's what we do when people are suffering. And then slow and steady, there's more and more and more of them and they're taking up more of your home. And now they come in and they're like, well, now that we have this whole entire floor, this is our home now, you need to stay in your room to give us more space. And you're like, wait, what? This is my house. And now they bring in the weapons and they bring in the armed people and they're like no no this is what I said you get to stay in your room that's your place this is our house now obviously makes no logical sense but that's literally what's going and then now you're confined to your bedroom you have free movement within your bedroom you can do whatever you want in there nobody's telling you what to do but if you want to leave your bedroom to go to the kitchen to eat or to go to the bathroom and shower or to do anything outside of that, you need permission from them because they took over the house. So now you have to ask for permits. Hey, can I go at 2 p.m. to the kitchen so I can make lunch for my kids? And they can either say yes or they can say no. It really depends on the mood of the soldier that day. Like just sit with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then be like, okay, well, I should be grateful that I have my own room to sit in peacefully within my own walls, right? That's what I'm supposed to be grateful for. Or be grateful that they actually feed us maybe once a day or they don't torture us or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the level of gaslighting <laughs> that's going on here. Mm-hmm. And then if you, you're fed up, but guess what? You're trying to sweet talk them, be like, hey guys, like this is kind of my house. I want to go back to my land. I want to go back to my living room. I want to go back you know, I still have the key for the front room that I used to, my library that I used to study in. Can I go back there? No, no. But you said like, this was temporary. No, no, we took over that room too. You're no longer allowed to go back. 
-hmm. okay, well, my kid is hungry. They, my, my other kid is starving. Um, I need to feed them. And then they would just throw you something. Be like, here, here's your food on the outside of the door and you have to go beg for it or you have to go figure that out. And then you're, you're fed up now. You're fed up now because this has lasted way too long. You've tried to talk to them and they're not listening. So now you're trying to find your way out of this home. You're like, you know what? I, I can't stand living here anymore. Let me see if I can find a window that I can jump out of or something. But no, you're not allowed to open the windows because they're blocking that too, because they don't want you to leave. So what else? If you can't leave by air or by land, where else do you go? You start digging in your own ground to try to figure out a way to get out of this madness. And then, which, by the way, these same people did when they were persecuted and they left, is they left through tunnels and they had the whole tunnel system. So it's like the irony of of the comparison just... Mm -hmm. But no, the minute you try to open that door and you break through it and there's someone that's confronted... And you're like, get out of my way. You push them, get out of my way. They immediately go and shoot you because they're defending themselves from you. Because you punched them. Because you were the one that was terrorizing them. It's all your fault. You have no food of your own. You have no water. You have no electricity. You have no nothing. And the minute that you try to stand up for yourself, 40 years later... They say, no, they're defending themselves from you because you're a human animal and you don't have respect and you can't do peace treaties. You can't talk nicely because every other peace treaty you tried was rejected because it didn't favor you. them. I mean, it didn't favor them. So it was rejected. Right. right. So this story, and I appreciate that so much because I think it really helps people understand this occupation and the Hamas reaction on October 7th, that this was a long, long, long time of reacting to the atrocities really that Israel Israel has done to those in Gaza and taken that land and occupied Palestinian land. And now- It doesn't even be um, the West Bank side of things. Right. And I put in my notes, like, do we get into that? Because the Israeli occupation of the West Banks is a whole other story that we're not talking a lot about, but it's it's at play also. I feel like it's important to mention that. And just recently, Hamas had released a, a public report called Our Narrative. I don't know if you've been okay. able to read it, or not, but that's basically not. them saying exactly why they did what they did, what happened, and who they are, and stuff like that. And it, it was very, and it's in English. And basically, the the plight of the Palestinians is never a Gaza versus West Bank ordeal, because it's a Palestinian problem at root. And what Hamas had said was the reason that provoked them to escalate at this, you know, magnitude was that we have 5,000, 6,000 Palestinians in Israeli prisons in quote-unquote administrative detention that are held for up to six months at a time with no representation, with majority no family visits. A lot of them are children. They have no right to trial. 
of their peer or a jury of their peers, and they don't know why they're being held, or they're being held by absolutely absurd charges. And 99% of the people that are there are convicted. And that's another story that we're so unaware of. Reading that book, The Lioness and her story. I mean, she really does go into that there that I was, I was shocked. Like so much of this, we're just shocked because especially being raised, born, born and raised conservative Christian, it's so not the narrative. We're always on the side of Israel. Israel is great. So now when we start to dive in and hear what you're talking about with how the treatment of Palestinians and the in the in the Israeli prisons, like there's so much here that is just mind blowing and horrific. And I just like you said at the beginning of our conversation, I hope that people are now starting to learn and be aware. Go ahead, Samantha. So Everybody talks about October 7 and how horrific it was. If October 7 didn't happen, would you know about those people? Mm. Does it make sense if you are an occupied people for 75 plus years and the whole world that has actually no idea what's going on because one party controls the narrative and the other party is always pressed, depressed, depressed, censored, and you just need to like send out an SOS signal or something. What actually defines how severe or how drastic a measure is to be taken by occupied people that are oppressed, that need some kind of spotlight to show how horrific their life is? Who are we to determine how they can resist? When the UN has a resolution stating that every people, especially the Palestinian people, have the right to self-determination and they have the right to resist their occupier, even by armed force. If the UN resolution is saying that Hamas is a legitimate entity and they have the right to do what they have to do, then who are we to determine how they're allowed to figure out and resist this power that's against them? Who does Israel think they are to be an occupying powder, and it is stated as an occupation, to claim self-defense from the same people that they're occupying. Make that make sense. It makes no sense. And that your point is so, it's it's so good as far as how would we even know about all, what I even know about all of this that October 7th not happened. And it really puts things in perspective. So making it make sense, how is Israel, and I know this is a whole other podcast, but maybe we can touch on it, but like, how is Israel getting away with this? I mean, the UN chief has already said that it's heartbreaking and utterly unacceptable what Israel is doing. You know, we have Africa taking them for, for genocide, but they are continuing to get away with it. The U.S. is continuing to sponsor the genocide. I mean, I, I know you know this and it's beyond frustrating. And how do you make sense of that? I mean, I know there's a lot of history and power at play with that. Oh, Absolutely. It, it was all a plan. It was all a very detailed design plan for the Western colonizers that have always been historically colonizers mm -hmm. to put some type of entity in this land because they had a yeah. huge interest in it. It's yeah. very rich with minerals and money and power. And now that they're talking about the Ben-Gurion Canal that I'm sure you've heard of, um, where they're trying to replace the Suez Canal. Anywhere there is money, you will find the people that are going to follow the money. Why do you think U.S. is bombing Yemen right now? Did, yeah. did the Yemenis hurt anybody? Did they kill anybody? The naval blockade that they are putting now, because they are strategically placed 
to make such a big disruption in how the shipping, you know, containers move. And that's commerce. It's commerce. It's money. It's people's money. It's big people's money. And they're messing with it. Yep. Immediately, when they notice that they have the ability to do that with how small of a Navy and army they have, they were able to like stick a thorn in the world's side saying, if you don't demand a ceasefire right now and stop killing my brothers in Palestine, I am going to cut off your money source. And only strictly Israeli and American ships. They didn't They didn't mess with other people's ships because they didn't have a fight with them. Like the big brother trying to fight the bully type situation. And I love them dearly for it. And they've been trolling the US and, and the UK with every single absurd thing that comes out. They've been countering it with the same exact idiocy. And I love it to death. So yeah. it's the money. The US has money interest in the in the land. The UK has interest in the land. The whole entire European Union at some point has interest in the land. Yeah. And that's 100% what it comes down to. Yes. That's what Zionism is. It's not, it's nothing about religion. It's nothing about the people having a state. That's right. Or protecting a people that we didn't even let come into this country during World War II. I mean, yes, it goes way deep within to that. It's not about that. It's about white supremacy. It's about power. It's about money. Absolutely. Anti-Semitism is a European problem. It's not a Middle Eastern problem because we are Semites. Semites are people that speak Arabic and Hebrew and other smaller languages. It is a strictly European problem because had they presented a two-state solution for the Holocaust, it would have been in Germany land. Why didn't they split Germany in half for half of it to be for you know, Israel for, for the Jewish people to, to stay safe in. Why didn't the U.S. take in the majority of the refugees? Why didn't Britain do that? Why didn't all of these other people demand Germany to fix their problems? Why did they okay. pick up these quote unquote problematic people that now are being persecuted? Why did they pick them up and throw them in a country that had nothing to do with it? Yeah, they didn't. 100%, they didn't. Right. Didn't kill them. They didn't hate them. They were living together for thousands of years as neighbors, borrowing sugar and food from each other and 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 marrying into each other's families. Like, why is this our problem now? That's it's right. because there's an ulterior motive that's a land grab, power, money, greed, and all of the things. That Ben Gurion Canal is estimated to create six billion dollars of profits annually once it's constructed. Of course, everybody wants a piece of that pie. But guess what? Will we get a piece of that pie? No, no. We get our lands taken away. We get our homes flattened to the ground. And we get Gaza Strip being split into half because there's going to be a canal going through it because that's the best route for them. It doesn't make sense to walk around Gaza Strip and go through Tel Aviv. It makes sense to go right through Gaza City, the whole entire strip. And that's why Israel wants to control it again. Had Israel really cared about the hostages, they wouldn't be doing this. That's right. That's right. Because they've killed hostages. They've killed Israeli. I mean, you're exact 100% right. And so I'm trying to be mindful of your time here, Samantha, because I know we have so many things I want to talk about. So that's where we are. And that's the reality of it. And there are so many now in this country and around the world speaking out and seeing that this is a genocide. 
So bring us back to what we can do. Like, I know once our eyes start to open, people like me, like it can feel very hopeless, but there are, because it's still going on. And some people can think, well, I'm doing all this and nothing's working. I mean, I know you shared writing to one of the Missouri representatives and the letter you got back from him was uh, just ridiculous. And so white supremacist and awful. So you're not losing hope. I, I mean, you're, you're still demanding a ceasefire. You're doing all these things. Like, tell us what we can and should keep doing. The boycotts, all of that. Do they Are they working? Are they helping? We're, we're, help us make sense of what to keep doing. I think the first thing is education. Um, now that we are aware and we know, we have to do something about it. And mm-hmm. the reason I host so many meetups and the reason that we have a quote-unquote free Palestine coalition here in Kansas City, which is a group of many different diverse people that um, come together and try to coordinate and organize these actions so everybody has somewhere to go to to understand and and to collaborate and and to create change. If you follow the Instagram Free Palestine KC, that's where we're at and we're trying to share as much as we can. But in the meantime, educate yourself and your people. We as people, I say this all the time, We are oppressed people in a free land. We Mm. are not that free here because our media is shoved in our faces. We don't have our freedom with that. We really don't have freedom of speech, if you really think about it. Um, And the way that this society was created was created for people to be so individualistic and, and our family units just so minuscule that I only care about me and my kids. You only care about you and your family. And that's it. Like, we don't have time because we're in so much debt and our credit scores are, you know, falling to the ground and we have to survive and we have to pay our bills and inflation is eating us alive. So that was created. The whole entire system was created for us to always stay slaves Mm -hmm. to the dollar bill, to the money, to the big corporations that buy us out of this for healthcare and for our jobs. And I can't afford to lose my job. Therefore, I can't afford to speak up because if I speak up, I'm losing that. And how am I going to feed my kids? You know what I mean? So that's a constant circle that keeps going back and forth. And that is not a free people. So just being aware of that, but also educating. I do have power, though. I do have a voice. I can vote. I can boycott. I can control the things that I can participate in. So I would, and that's a lot. So I'll just try to dissect no, it. A I, bit this is very, I think this is really very helpful. So I keep, I mean, say as much as you want, because I think people can feel overwhelmed and like, then make them do nothing by the nature of white supremacy, thinking they have to do everything perfectly. So I think this, this is very helpful to name a lot of things. And we'll talk a little bit, dive deeper into the voting. So no, no, keep going with where, where you're at with that. Sounds good. So If there was anything that you need to open your mind, I would suggest this. Go to occupationmovie.org. It is a movie called The Occupation of the American Mind. This is explaining in deep detail on how America and Israel and all of these forces are planning and designing how they can by the American votes and how they can occupy your minds and feed you the bullshit that they've been feeding you. So when it comes time for you to stand up, you're already programmed. When I was listening to what they were saying, I was shocked 
I knew half of it. I didn't know the rest of it. I was shocked. And they, they are taking the American people as idiots. That's just how it is. That's literally just how it is. And if you don't want to be an idiot, I think you should watch this movie. I'm going to be quiet on that. There's a lot I could go into with that statement. I mean, we are though. It's like we have been so brainwashed. And like you said, we are so, this is the design of this capitalistic, white supremacist, capitalistic society that we're in to have us in this hamster wheel and being brainwashed. And so we're just, we're playing the part that was designed for us. Unless we actively do these things of educating ourselves and speaking up and breaking out of that system in all the ways we can. And boycotting is one because so many things like you're breaking out of the capitalism, you're giving messages to Starbucks and all these other places. And I know people can think it doesn't work or doesn't help because we're still here. But I think every little bit of these movements help. Would you agree? I would agree because that now Starbucks and McDonald's and all these other big CEOs are coming out saying, well, me, we've lost $11 billion in the last three months, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what, do you want us to feel sorry for you? Then stop supporting this. Like, it's super simple. And if people don't know what boycotting actually means, it's not. And I, I have a lot of trolls online that like to fight back with this on me. Boycotting is not that you no longer can own anything from these companies or that you no longer can consume what you already have. Boycotting is a political stance to tell a company that you are no longer supporting them because of their political reasons and stances that they've been having against a certain thing. This is not oh, your, your camera and your iPhone was made in Israeli land. You should throw your iPhone away. This is not the case. Mm -hmm. This is us saying we are no longer supporting companies that are non-ethical and that are non-transparent in where they get their profits from. That's right. And I love Gen Z for this because they are very woke and they have that cancel culture happening already where they're like, oh, this person does that? Oh, hell no, I'm not mm -hmm. doing that. I'm going to Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I think it's part also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but of white supremacist white people, we think, oh, it's not working, I'm done. Like this is not an overnight quick fix. And I think we're in a society that thinks everything we do should be. I think it's the slow and steady. I mean, we see that in the civil rights movement or any large movement. It is not going to be an overnight fix. It is the slow and steadiness of a collective action that is going to make Absolutely. a difference. It's a, it's a lifestyle change. Yeah. Just like diets are a lifestyle change and exercise is a lifestyle change. Maybe you can find a magic pill that'll help you lose 10 pounds quickly. But guess what? Those 10 pounds are coming back. So it's the same thing. If you boycott a certain company for like 10 days and then you go back to to support them again, that didn't do anything. It didn't do anything for them. But if you're saying, I will know, I will find alternatives for this item that I need or this product that I need because I no longer support the people I was loyal to before because they had a good product. It has nothing to do with the product being good or bad. It's it's the money and the profits that they take from it and what that That's supports. Right. That it's, it's follow the money. At the end of the day, it's always follow the money, whichever side you're on. Um, so that, that's something that I feel like people need to understand. Plus, guess what? 
I've always not technically boycotted, but I've always tried to stay away from all the big companies and players because we don't want to make the rich people richer. That's I right. want to support small local businesses. I want to support like the people that are like me that need right. that money so they can pay their mortgages and that they can afford ballet school for their kids and stuff like that. So it's a very easy switch if you really think about it. That's don't right. spend money on no, you don't need. Don't spend money on things you don't need. If you need to spend money, find the smaller businesses that are local that you can support and stop making the rich richer. It's really simple. Right. And I think that, that is a really good th- rule to follow, whether or not we're in the yeah. middle of this genocide or not, just a long-term switch of consciousness with that. So let's switch gears. We're going to talk about voting because that's one of the things that you mentioned. And this is really um, an, a hairy issue right now. So another election coming up that, God bless, it looks like Biden, Trump again. And Biden has supported this genocide. He has supported Israel, continuing giving money to Israel to support the genocide. So what does somebody do? And I know there's a wide range of views on this, that if you vote not for Biden, for a third candidate is a vote for Trump, or there's no way I'm voting for Biden. So tell me... Tell me your thoughts on this. And this is your opinion, but I, I really much value your opinion. As I told you, I was talking to my 21 year old who's like, I don't know what to do, mom. And and also I'm somebody that I've been really honest is I was a very conservative Christian, never, always voted Republican. So Biden was the first Democrat I voted for. So in my mind, I'm like, well, I guess I always vote for a, for a Democrat. Right. But now I'm like, well, so what do we do? Yeah, this this whole red pill, blue pill situation is in itself propaganda. When they tell us that you only have two options, you have this Democrat or you have this Republican, and then you try to have to pick between the two evils, which one is less poisonous, that's all bullshit. I can't deal with that anymore. So what people need to understand is per your values, per your um, own research on what is truly going on and what these people are actually supporting and and providing for us people here in the States, um, we do have other options. I didn't know that we had an independent party until like right before Biden won. I didn't know that. That was never a thing that was taught to me. And we never see them being equally put on the... um, the, the parties and the and the ballots and, and all that stuff. So that was something that I was not aware of. And now that I look into the other alternative people, they're actually pretty decent people. They are very loud in terms of like against the genocide and, and for the Palestinian people and for their freedom and for all the other uh, occupied people in the world that are going through this too. So it's not always about Palestine too. This is a whole collective global um decision that us U.S. citizens get to have some type of say in, because guess what? U.S. has a veto power that honestly needs to be abolished. But as long as U.S. has veto power, we have to really select our people very, very carefully, because it is a global decision at the end of the day on what happens because of that. So what my two thoughts are is, I'm going to go in, figure out how to unaffiliate myself because I can no longer, like you would find me dead before you find me voting for Biden again. 
And we're not really fond of Trump either because he's been very honest, I would say, about where he stands with all of this. So we already know that he was, you know, one of the worst people in the world. And we've tasted that a bit for four years. But Biden, like the whole Democratic Party, they are the same. They're just two different sides of the same coin. It's literally the same thing. And they cause all this theatricals of fighting against each other. They make us believe that they're different, but they're really not. So I say, screw the whole coin, toss it and throw it in the trash. Like we don't need it. We need a new country. I'm trying, I'm trying to get there. The thought that keeps going through my mind is, isn't that aren't the Democrats the lesser of the two evils? And isn't a vote for a third party a vote for Trump? How do you deal with that? And I'm just being really That's honest propaganda. with you of what's going through my mind. That's propaganda. That's what they want okay. you to believe. Okay. Okay. As, as long as we keep choosing the lesser of the two evils, we will never be able to put a third option no. up there. And perhaps this goes back to what we were saying earlier, is that it's the long game. It's not the overnight fix that it's going to take more than one voting session of voting for a third party candidate. It's going to take. A- yes, absolutely. When when you think about the long term game, what is the likelihood of one of these two people winning? It's a very high chance. But if we don't make the noise now and start breaking the system now and giving Gen Z something to work with for the next elections to come, then how are we ever going to change? Okay. Abolishing the system is not an option right now. It's just it is a very, very difficult thing to do. But if we can learn the system and actually use it correctly, if every single pro-Palestinian person today that now is a very aware of what's going on, if all of us collectively said, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to vote. How many billions of people would that be? If mm. all of us went ahead, if we were Democrats or Republicans, I don't care what we were, if we went in and signed up as unaffiliated people, what is that going to tell the government? But also, if all of us collectively and encourage the people who have never registered to vote before, if we all pushed for that too, be like, hey, you need to vote and you need to vote unaffiliated, what is that going to tell the government that yeah. we're listening and aware and we're not playing this game anymore because you can only... You can only have the game last as long as you play it. So that's very helpful and powerful and helping also switch that narrative a little bit that we have ingrained, or at least I still do in my mind. Samantha, I know we have to wrap up here. I'm trying to be respectful of your time. You've given me so much. I'd like to just end with a final question and then anything else you want to add. How do you keep going? And how are you not losing hope? Because what your body has gone through, your ancestors, especially in these last few months, is just horrific and unimaginable. So I'd love to know how you keep going and don't lose hope during these times. There's always hope. There's never a day where there's no hope. Some days it gets lower than the rest, but there's always hope. There's always hope. And then we, we keep going back to, I have people that are relying on me mm. to survive, whether it's true or not. It's always in my head at the back of my head that creates the survival guilt that I have mm. with that beginning the stroke of luck that I got a piece of paper that puts me in a situation where I'm not with them I have the social responsibility to keep going to make sure that they survive mm. I don't feel like I have a lot of options people don't choose to be here but they can choose to do what they can to change and I feel like I do have some sort of platform that I've created for myself. I do have a very good community around me that is super supportive. 
and for some reason they like me so they trust me and I have to be able to keep going to make sure that this message doesn't die because that's what they want us to feel they want us to be defeated they want us to stop talking they want us to get tired but mm. screw that <laughs> I'm too rebellious and stubborn for that so yeah I can't I can't stop yeah, your life and actions and continuation, I mean, is part of the resistance. It's part of your activism. Is there, we've covered so much in this conversation, but still not enough. Is there anything else that you want to add that you didn't get to say or that you feel like is important for people to hear? I think kind of like we were just talking about existence is resistance. I would tell everyone listening, um, just don't, don't give up. There's a lot of things we can still do. There's a lot of hope that we still have for change. Not Change is not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight. Just the reminder. So if you truly believe that change can happen, it will happen. You have to manifest it. And we have a very good community here in Kansas City that we have built. If you're interested in joining us, um, DM the Instagram account Free Palestine KC. Follow us, share all of our um, actions that we're sharing with everybody. DM us if you want to be a part of our group that organizes and puts things together. Um, we love, we love, love creating and building community that is safe and supportive, but also takes action into hand and, and make sure that the other people that are not able to have their voices heard or that are suppressed um, are seen and are heard. So, and educate yourself and others. And we'll put links to that on the show notes for this episode, Samantha, and we'll put links to where you can be found. I know you also have Instagram and Facebook. And if people are in the Kansas City area looking for a house or a home, you're somebody to connect with as one of the top realtors in Kansas City. So, um, we'll be sure to put links to all of that. Thank you just so, like I said, thank you doesn't seem like enough. Beyond thank you for your time and sharing this and your voice and your example, just everything. I'm so grateful. I, I really appreciate your time and your willingness to, to put this together and to, and to give us a voice. So I always, and, and, to, and to be here also and to accept and learn and unlearn a lot of things. So I, it takes a lot of mental load and I see it and I see you. I appreciate that. important conversation. As always, the links mentioned in the episode can be found on the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. I also encourage you to go follow Samantha on her Instagram at Travel Like a Sash, where she currently has a fundraiser set up where you can donate to Palestine Children's Relief Fund.